Chapter Seventeen of Characters of Shakespeare's Plays by William Hazlitt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nemo. Henry the Fifth. Henry the Fifth is a very favorite monarch with the English nation, and he appears to have been also a favorite with Shakespeare, who labors hard to apologize for the actions of the king by showing us the character of the man as the king of good fellows he scarcely deserves this honor he was fond of war and low company we know little else of him he was careless dissolute and ambitious idle or doing mischief in private he seemed to have no idea of the common decencies of life which he subjected to a kind of regal license in public affairs he seemed to have no idea of any rule of right or wrong but brute force glossed over with a little religious hypocrisy and archiepiscopal advice his principles did not change with his situation and professions his adventure on gadshill was a prelude to the affair of angincourt only a bloodless one falstaff was a puny prompter of violence and outrage compared with a pious and politic archbishop of canterbury who gave the king carte blanche in a genealogical tree of his family to rob and murder in circles of latitude and longitude abroad to save the possessions of the church at home this appears in the speeches in shakespeare where the hidden motives that actuate princes and their advisers in warren policy are better laid open than in speeches from the throne or woolsack henry because he did not know how to govern his own kingdom determined to make war upon his neighbors because his own title to the crown was doubtful he laid claim to that of france because he did not know how to exercise the enormous power which had just dropped into his hands to any one good purpose he immediately undertook a cheap and obvious resource of sovereignty to do all the mischief he could even if absolute monarchs had the wit to find out objects of laudable ambition they could only plume up their wills in adhering to the more sacred formula of the royal prerogative the right divine of kings to govern wrong because will is only then triumphant when it is opposed to the will of others because the pride of power is only then shown not when it consults the rights and interests of others but when it insults and tramples on all justice and all humanity henry declares his resolution when france is his to bend it to his awe or break it all to pieces a resolution worthy of a conqueror to destroy all that he cannot enslave and what adds to the joke he lays all the blame of the consequences of his ambition on those who will not submit tamely to his tyranny such is the history of kingly power from the beginning to the end of the world with this difference that the object of war formerly when the people adhered to their allegiance was to depose kings the object latterly since the people swerved from their allegiance has been to restore kings and to make common cause against mankind the object of our late invasion and conquest of france was to restore the legitimate monarch the descendant of hugh capet 
to the throne. Henry V in his time made war on and deposed the descendant of this very Hugh Capet, on the plea that he was a usurper and illegitimate. What would the great modern catspaw of legitimacy and restorer of divine right have said to the claim of Henry and the title of the descendants of Hugh Capet? Henry V, it is true, was a hero, a king of England, and the conqueror of the king of France. Yet we feel little love or admiration for him. He was a hero, that is, he was ready to sacrifice his own life for the pleasure of destroying thousands of other lives. He was a king of England, but not a constitutional one, and we only like kings according to the law. Lastly, he was a conqueror of the French king, and for this we dislike him less than if he had conquered the French people. How, then, do we like him? We like him in the play. There he is a very amiable monster, a very splendid pageant, as we like to gaze at a panther or a young lion in their cages in the tower, and catch a pleasing horror from their glistening eyes, their velvet paws, and dreadless roar. So we take a very romantic, heroic, patriotic, and poetical delight in the boast and feats of our younger Harry, as they appear on the stage and are confined to lines of ten syllables, where no blood follows the stroke that wounds our ears, where no harvest bends beneath horses' hoofs, no city flames, no little child is butchered, no dead men's bodies are found piled on heaps and festering the next morning in the orchestra. So much for the politics of this play now for the poetry perhaps one of the most striking images in all shakespeare is that given of war in the first lines of the prologue oh for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention a kingdom first age princes to act and monarchs to behold the swelling scene then should the warlike harry like himself assume the port of mars and at his heels leashed in like hounds should famine sword and fire crouch for employment rubens if he had painted it would not have improved upon the simile the conversation between the archbishop of canterbury and the bishop of eli relating to the sudden change in the manners of henry v is among the well-known beauties of shakespeare it is indeed admirable both for strength and grace it has sometimes occurred to us that shakespeare in describing the reformation of the prince might have had an eye to himself which is a wonder how his grace should glean it since his addiction was to course as vain his companies unlettered rude and shallow his hours filled up with riots banquets sports and never noted in him any study any retirement any sequestration from open haunts and popularity eli the strawberry grows underneath the nettle and wholesome berries thrive and ripen best neighbored by fruit of baser quality and so the prince obscured his contemplation under the veil of wildness which no doubt grew like the summer grass fastest by night unseen yet aggressive in his faculty. This, at least, is as probable an account of the progress of the poet's mind 
as we have met with in any of the essays on the learning of shakespeare nothing can be better managed than the caution which the king gives the meddling archbishop not to advise him rashly to engage in the war with france his scrupulous dread of the consequences of that advice and his eager desire to hear and follow it and god forbid my dear and faithful lord that you should fashion rest or bow your reading or nicely charge your understanding soul with opening titles miscreant whose right suits not a native colours with the truth for god doth know how many now in health shall drop their blood in approbation of what your reverence shall incite us to therefore take heed how you impawn your person how you awake our sleeping sword of war we charge you in the name of god take heed for never two such kingdoms did contend without much fall of blood whose guiltless drops are every one a woe a sore complaint against him whose wrong gives edge unto the swords that make such waste in brief mortality under this conjuration speak my lord for we will hear note and believe in heart that what you speak is in your conscience washed as pure as sin with baptism another characteristic instance of the blindness of human nature to everything but its own interest is the complaint made by the king of the ill neighbourhood of the scot in attacking england when she was attacking france for once the eagle england being in prey to her unguarded nest the weasel scot comes sneaking and so sucks her princely eggs it is worth observing that in all these plays which give an admirable picture of the spirit of the good old times the moral inference does not at all depend upon the nature of the actions but on the dignity or meanness of the persons committing them the eagle england has a right to be and pray but the weasel scot has none to come sneaking to her nest which she has left to pounce upon others might was right without equivocation or disguise in that heroic and chivalrous age the substitution of right for might even in theory is among the refinements and abuses of modern philosophy a more beautiful rhetorical delineation of the effects of subordination in a commonwealth can hardly be conceived than the following for government though high and low and lower put into parts doth keep in one consent congruing in a full and natural close like music therefore heaven doth divide the state of man in diverse functions setting endeavour in continual motion to which is fixed as an aim or but obedience for so work the honey-bees creatures that by a rule in nature teach the art of order to a peopled kingdom they have a king and officers of sorts where some like magistrates correct at home others like merchants venture trade abroad others like soldiers armed in their stings make boot upon the summer's velvet buds which pillage they with merry march bring home to the tent royal of their emperor 
who busied in his majesty surveys the singing mason building roofs of gold the civil citizens kneading up the honey the poor mechanic porters crowding in their heavy burthens at his narrow gate the sad-eyed justice with his surly hum delivering o'er to executors pale the lazy yawning drone i this infer that many things having full reference to one consent may work contrariously as many arrows loosed several ways fly to one mark as many several ways meet in one town as many fresh streams meet in one salt sea as many lines close in the dial centre so may a thousand actions once afoot end in one purpose and be all well born without defeat henry v is but one of shakespeare's second-rate plays yet by quoting passages like this from his second-rate plays alone we might make a volume rich with his praise as is the oozy bottom of the sea with sunken rack and sumless treasuries of this sort are the king's remonstrance to scroop gray in cambridge on the detection of their treason his address to the soldiers at the siege of harfleur and the still finer one before the battle of agincourt the description of the night before the battle and the reflections on ceremony put into the mouth of the king o oh, hard condition twin born with greatness subjected to the breath of every fool whose sense no more can feel but his own ringing what infinite heart's ease must kings neglect that private men enjoy and what have kings that privates have not too save ceremony save general ceremony and what art thou thou idle ceremony what kind of god art thou that suffers more of mortal griefs than do thy worshippers what are thy rents what are thy comings in o ceremony show me but thy worth what is thy soul o adoration art thou aught else but place degree and form creating awe and fear in other men wherein thou art less happy being feared than they in fearing what drinkest thou oft instead of homage sweet but poisoned flattery oh be sick great greatness and bid thy ceremony give thee cure thinkest thou the fiery fever will go out with titles blown from adulation will it give place to flexure and low bending canst thou when thou commandest the beggar's knee command the health of it no thou proud dream that playest so subtly with a king's repose i am a king that find thee and i know tis not the balm the sceptre and the ball the sword the mace the crown imperial the enter-tissued robe of gold and pearl the farced title running for the king the throne he sits on nor the tide of pomp that beats upon the high shore of this world no not all these thrice gorgeous ceremony not all these laid in bed majestical can sleep so soundly as the wretched slave who 
with a body filled and vacant mind gets him to rest crammed with distressful bread never sees horrid night the child of hell but like a lackey from rise to set sweats in the eye of phoebus and all night sleeps in elysium next day after dawn doth rise and help hyperion to his horse and follows so the ever-running year with profitable labour to his grave and but for ceremony such a wretch winding up days with toil and nights with sleep has the forehand and vantage of a king the slave a member of the country's peace enjoys it but in gross brain little watts what watch the king keeps to maintain the peace whose hours the peasant best advantages most of these passages are well known there is one which we do not remember to have seen noticed and yet it is no whit inferior to the rest in heroic beauty it is the account of the deaths of york and suffolk exeter the duke of york commends him to your majesty king henry lives he good uncle thrice within this hour i saw him down thrice up again and fighting from helmet to the spur all bloody was exeter in which array brave soldier doth he lie larding the plain and by his bloody side yoke fellow to his honour owning wounds the noble earl of suffolk also lies suffolk first died and york all haggled o'er comes to him where in gore he lay and steeped and takes him by the beard kisses the gashes that bloodily did yawn upon his face and cries aloud tarry dear cousin suffolk my soul shall thine keep company to heaven tarry sweet soul for mine then fly abreast as in this glorious and well-foughten field we kept together in our chivalry upon these words i came and cheered him up he smiled me in the face wrought me his hand and with a feeble gripe says dear my lord commend my service to my sovereign so did he turn and over suffolk's neck he threw his wounded arm and kissed his lips and so espoused to death with blood he sealed a testament of noble ending love but we must have done with splendid quotations the behaviour of the king in the difficult and doubtful circumstances in which he is placed is as patient and modest as it is spirited and lofty in his prosperous fortune the character of the french nobles is also very admirably depicted and the dauphin's praise of his horse shows the vanity of that class of persons in a very striking point of view shakespeare always accompanies a foolish prince with a satirical courtier as we see in this instance the comic parts of henry v are very inferior to those of henry the fourth falstaff is dead and without him pistol nim and bardolph are satellites without a son Fluellen, the welshman is the most entertaining character in the piece he is good-natured brave choleric and pedantic his parallel between alexander and harry of monmouth and his desire to have some disputations with captain macmorris on the discipline of the roman wars in the heat of the battle 
are never to be forgotten his treatment of pistol is as good as pistol's treatment of his french prisoner there are two other remarkable prose passages in this play the conversation of henry in disguise with the three sentinels on the duties of a soldier and his courtship of catherine in broken french we like them both exceedingly though the first savors perhaps too much of the king and the last too little of the lover end of henry the fifth